Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, etc. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, gives a bundle of the best in fiction and non-fiction. Melvin Minar chats to Rihanna Rousseau about New Times, which has her exquisite verve and trademark attention to language. Beverly Rawsmuller maintains that Sir Salman Rushdie's new novel, The Golden House, is one of Rushdie's greatest works, a marvellous literary accomplishment. Vanessa Levenstein suggests that Waiting for Godot is Samuel Beckett's timeless masterpiece, brought to life in Joe Baker's A Country Road, A Tree. Peter Soule lingered long over Dare Not Linger, The Presidential Years by Nelson Mandela and Mandalanga. Sheila Chisholm is kept on her toes by My Dancing Life, Spanish and Ballet Across Three Continents, Marina Groot's frank and funny autobiography. Philippa Schaeffert slips into the kitchen with Butter and Love Buracos by Anna Carolina Albert and Curry, Stories and Recipes from Across South Africa by Ishe Govinda Ipma. Mike Fitzjames, cruel as ever, stiffens our spines with three gripping thrillers. Cindy Moritz sings the praises of Jesmyn Ward's Sing Unburied Sing, which brings the archetypal road trip into 21st century America. Do stay with us for our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks. Hi, everyone. Right, well, I think today let me start with a cookbook. And this is called The How Not to Die Cookbook, which is a great title. Hey? It is a vegetarian cookbook, and it is designed to cure all the ills of modern man. And I say that sort of with my tongue in my cheek, but actually it is scientifically designed to stop you eating food that is bad for you, in the opinion of the author and various nutritionists. It's a diet designed to help stop Parkinson's, to stop Alzheimer's, all the diseases, blood cancers, high blood pressure, etc., etc. And it is an approach to cooking that is it's quite strange and it's what is quite amazing is that a cookbook has come out of it that is actually very good very palatable lovely recipes things from chickpeas to spaghetti to black beans uh, quinoa etc etc it's a very functional and very good cookbook for cooking foods that you like and also will help you live a longer life lots of grains, all vegetarian. I don't think there's any dairy or anything like that in it. So it's over a 100 recipes to help prevent and reverse diseases. The How Not to Die Cookbook, Michael Grieger. And it is 380 rand. Let's go on to something a bit differently. This is a book written about who we really are and what we're really doing. Surveys go out all the time asking people who they are, what they're doing, what they think, who they vote for. And as you can see, we 
tend to get things wrong. They never thought Donald Trump would win, and he won. Uh, They never thought Brexit would happen, and it happened. And it's because people lie when they are being polled. And uh, it's very hard to tell who's lying, who's not lying. The gay portion of the population in Kinsney's time was thought to be 10%. Then it would drop down to 2% because of the the verbal surveys, and now it's at 5%. So who's telling the truth? Who's lying? And this book is Everybody Lies, What the Internet Can Tell Us About who we really are. And it's all linked through to Google because Google analyzes all the searches that happen on their site and they provide that to researchers. So the researchers can go and ask Google questions and they can find out how many people think what they think. And it is an absolutely fascinating book. It does reveal a lot of who we are or who the Americans are, really, at this time of survey. It's, it's a book that I would rank alongside Freakonomics as a book that really shocks when you find out exactly what people are thinking and what they're doing. It's called Everybody Lies, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And it's by Seth Davis Davidovitz. And it's 330 rand. Now I've got two novels. One by Robin Sloan called Sourdough. Robin Sloan, if you remember, wrote Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, which was a great success and great reading. We all loved it. And now it's written the book called Sourdough. The character is given a pot of sourdough to look after. And anyone who's worked with sourdough knows it takes a lot of looking after. You have to keep it warm, you have to use it every now and then, feed it, etc., etc. So this was quite a responsibility. And he decides to work with it and decides to cook bread with it, make bread with it. Falls in love, really, with sourdough, the sourdough starter, and this changes the life. So this is a wonderful what-can-happen-to-you type book. And it's 295 Rand, Robin Sloan, Sourdough. And then I must just mention, I haven't finished the book yet because it's so wonderful, it takes a lot of close reading. It's the new Claire Robertson book, Under Glass. Now those who know Claire Robertson, she's written several books before. Uh, Let me just get them correctly. The Spiral House and The Magistrate of Gower. She's won many awards for these books. They're all beautifully written, beautifully researched, books that you get involved in and absorbed in. And this one uh, involves a young Englishwoman who arrives in Port Natal from India to make a new life for her family among settlers, homesteaders, and sugarcane farmers. She's with her daughter and the child's ayah, and she's been traveling for 11 months to join her husband already deep in the hinterland. So it's set in 1857, long time ago. It's about the start of South Africa, the start of the colony, and what I've read so far, it is absolutely marvelous. She is a brilliant, brilliant writer, and she deserves every prize she has got. I believe she lives in Simonstown, and her books are wonderful. That's Under Glass by Claire Robertson, and it's 270 Rand. And let me just mention a couple of books that have been released over Christmas. The first was the Minette Walters. Anyone who hasn't read Minette Walters yet, I'm sure most of you have. Minette Walters normally writes crime thrillers and uh, general dark apocalyptic type thrillers. Now she has written a historical book, and this book 
set that's called The Last Hours, uh, set in 1348. It's a totally different from Manette Walters and one really worth reading for all the fans out there and people who should be fans. That's the one that I can recommend. And then there's a Jack Reacher. Anyone who hasn't read Jack Reacher and Lee Child, the Lee Child, the new one is called The Midnight Line. I love Jack Reacher and I love Lee Child. All of it is well worth reading and these are great thrillers to get your teeth into. That's all I've got for you now. Thanks a lot. Keep reading. Cheers. Melvin Miller. Rihanna Rousseau caused quite a stir in local literary circles with her first novel in 2015. What will people say? Not only announced the dynamic, very caped new voice, but it astounded and drew praise for the vivid depiction of neighborhood characters and the piercing political issues of the day. The day being the times of and the lives in the battleground of the Cape Flats in the dark, depressing year of 1986. Anchored in the realities of ordinary people on the ground, their concerns and traits vibrantly brought to life in speed-reading inspiring prose, her acclaimed debut is wonderfully followed by New Times, a clever, clearly loaded title of a set of dramatics set in 1995. Yes, the year of Mandela, the World Cup win, etc. Loaded, as you will understand, is not the wrong word. In the main, New Times is the story of Ali Adams, a fierce political journalist from a conservative Boerkaab family, negotiating a career and identity in the early burly of a revolutionary time. Vividly observed and described, not without humor and empathy, it is a kind of engaging anti-hero tale. It's a great read, and thanks, Rihanna. As a veteran journalist deeply rooted in local politics and culture of your, in your career, was there an inevitability about setting your second novel in that loaded year? After 1986 was 1995, sort of inevitable. So I wouldn't say inevitable. What sparked me off was conversations I had had with the Fallists about the tactics that they were using to get their message across. And there was a big debate amongst the Fallists that violence was a tactic that they should that was justified because they wanted to ensure that people got their message and that started me thinking and I tried to say you know violence is not easy and violence has long lasting implications and that was what I started writing the book with Um, it was very unplanned my first book was a very carefully planned and plotted um, writing process this one came in fits and starts and I just let the characters carry me away well, that, that sort of was leading into my second question because there's always the anticipation of, a, of the second novel, you know, the follow-up to the first success. Did that inspire you or was it a challenge or was it just something personal about getting on with writing stories? Well, I did sign a two-book contract with my publishers and they wanted their second book. Um, and also I, I, thought, I thought I did have something to say and I wanted to write it myself so there wasn't pressure from the publishers I just started writing it when I felt ready to write it um, second book is terrifying um, <laughs> <laughs> I, what I found particularly terrifying was that I really wanted to make it a, very different to the first one but then there's so many similarities with the first one that I was quite surprised by the time I was finished with it there's a, certainly a style that runs through you know both which is really the Rihanna Rousseau kind of book. When do you find time to write as a hard-working journalist? I seem to write well, this one I wrote between 11pm and 4am. Every day? 
Not every day. Like I say, it came out in fits and starts. So I started writing the book and, and the, the character's father had died and she was in that situation. And about four months after I started writing the book, my father died. Oh. <laughs> and I had to drop it. I just wasn't in the headspace um, to write it. And then I started writing again and then an aunt died. Um, and then I had to stop writing and then I started writing again and my son was hospitalized. So it came in fits and starts. The time that I do write where I find myself most creative is between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. That's sort of like midnight owl stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that I've always been a night owl. Is that, that's the other side of the hard-working journalist, I suppose. Yeah, well, for most of my career, I've always freelanced and I've always had another gig going on. So this time around, I took the time and used it for myself and not to earn additional money or anything like that. I took time for myself, which felt wonderful. I seldom went to bed before 2 a.m. I was that kind of a person. It's a, it's a, like the first one. It's a, quite a substantial novel in many ways. I mean, how long does it take to write? <laughs> this one I wrote in two years. Um, like I say, in fits and starts. Um, I, it took me two years. Um, but I got carried away by the characters. I didn't even know until I could reach the end where it was ending. I wrote in two years. I was going to ask you, do you anticipate the conclusion when you start? Not really. You just No, not in this case, absolutely not. With my first novel, I had the last sentence first. Uh, from the time I started writing, I knew what the last sentence was. And when I got to the end, it still was the last sentence. Yeah, this time around, I had no idea where it was going, which was thrilling. I enjoyed it. Well, it, it gives it a certain vibrancy, which is really quite magical. The book New Times carries a strong feminist imperative. Given the setting of the conservative, even patriarchal Burkhop culture, you punt some very powerful points. How personal is this? Well, I suppose, I, yes, I am a feminist. And yes, I am a feminist within a particular culture. And then I have to make space for my feminism. Look, myself personally, I've never felt held back by my family. And also the generation before me, especially with my father's family, all women in the family were allowed to reach their dreams, no matter what their dreams were. So I've never experienced such patriarchy in my own life, but it does exist, and I do see people struggling with it. And often, and it's not only Islam, there's a lot of religions in South Africa where women are held back because of their religion, and they're regarded as lesser than. Well, as I said, you, the, the book makes a very strong point about it, but, uh, and a powerful one, and, you know, and congratulations, and thank you for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Beverly Rose Muller. Though Sir Salman Rushdie, now 70 years old, never mentions Donald Trump by name in this masterful novel, his uncouth persona is etched into this cautionary tale about today's America with all its lure and luster, divisions and duplicity, and potentially dire consequences globally. Yet Rushdie never allows his depressing wallpaper to overwhelm this, his best novel, since he burst onto the international scene in 1981 with his Booker-winning novel, Midnight Children, also later voted the best Booker novel ever published. The Golden House is more contemplative, though it does not lack complexity. It is less busy than some of his earlier books, narrating the rise and fall of a newly arrived immigrant emperor and his various and disappointing sons, and his failed legacy. 
Classically themed by implication, yet utterly modern in its settings and betrayals, it is a muscular, tragic tale. Nero Golden arrives in style in New York in 2009, just as the triumphant Obama era is flowering, and it concludes as a new political candidate looms, referred only to as the Joker. The Rushdie wrote most of this novel during a time when all of us, including him, never thought a Trump presidency could win. His achievement is to reflect an America in which such a candidate could win credibility and, as it turned out, actually triumph. The large and vastly rich golden household, mysterious in its origins, later revealed to be India, sets up in a rich New York enclave and is carefully observed by the quiet young neighbor Rene, a natural snoop and recorder of events of posterity. This young man befriends and is treated as family in the Golden Home, where he not only witnesses but also participates in the many dramas and betrayals that will ruin the patriarch. There is a missing wife, and later a new trophy wife, Russian, beautiful, and as ruthless in her own way as her aging husband, and quite the match for him. All three of his grown sons are troubled in some way. The eldest a recluse, the middle one artistic and reckless, and the youngest uncertain of his own sexual identity. And identity itself is a theme that runs throughout this absorbing book. Never one to shy away from difficult topics, the narrator asks the questions to which answers today seem more difficult than before. What is a good life? What is its opposite? Why do we deny that which is universal and yet glorify bigotry, vainglory, and personal gain, the hollow and bombastic men for whom nothing seems off limits? These are questions that we may well ask right here in our own bruised country. The Golden House is one of Rushdie's greatest works, a marvelous literary accomplishment and a historically important account of a great and empowerful country at war with its own heart. And a reminder that no story is new. This has been the way since the beginning of history and it usually ends badly. It is an allegory for us all. Rushdie has long been overlooked as a candidate for the Nobel Prize. It's time that the Swedish committee take a hard and honest look at that omission. Vanessa Levenstein. I've never been a fan of modern writers piggybacking on classics as they pen sequels, prequels, or, as some would like to think, equals. It's comparatively easy to appropriate a great work and simply add your own flavour, and often the enjoyment of the original work is then tarnished. So I was pleasantly surprised when I read Joe Baker's Longbourn, Pride and Prejudice, The Servant Story, a work that in its own right felt authentic. Joe Baker's new work is A Country Road, A Tree. If the title sounds familiar, it's because you've read the stage directions for Act One of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. A Country Road, A Tree is a biographical novel about Samuel Beckett, set in occupied France in World War II. The author never refers to Beckett by name, which is both confusing and contrived. The other people are all called by their names, including his friend, a cantankerous James Joyce, who gives the younger writer his coat, and Beckett's partner and later wife, Suzanne Deschavoux-Dumsnil. 
Beckett left the confines and claustrophobic comfort of Ireland for France. After the Nazis' occupation, he joined the French resistance. A cryptic letter saved him being captured by the Gestapo. Samuel and Suzanne then packed their bags, and not surprising, the first article that went into Beckett's bag before clothes or food was his manuscript. And so they flee to Rousselon, where Beckett continues his war efforts. Beckett himself did not like all the interpretations and clever explanations around Godot. However, the premise that waiting for Godot was a metaphor for Beckett's journey, his flee to Rousselon, is quite probable. Beckett and Suzanne sleep during the day and journey at night, always waiting for someone to come, afraid it might be the Gestapo, and hopeful it will be a contact, a saviour, read Godot. And here's where it all gets a bit clumsy, with obvious pointers like, he begins to take off his boots. She watches him strip his laces. If you get them off, she says, do you think you'll ever get them back on again? Cut to estrogen in waiting for Godot, who was fixated with the task of taking off and putting back on his boots. In a country road a tree, the two tramps are not Vladimir and Estrogen, they are Samuel Beckett and his partner Suzanne. The harsh landscape, the fear and the uncertainty are all there. But the humour of Beckett, his incredible ability to turn the mundane into the absurd, it's just not captured. It didn't feel like Beckett had got into their heads, or should I say, boots. A Country Road, a Tree is an interesting and worthwhile read. However, conjuring fictitious characters from pride and prejudice is far more stable ground than imagining what went on in the heart, mind and soul of one of the leading playwrights of our time, a Nobel winner and key figure in the theatre of the absurd. One closes the book with a keen understanding of Beckett's physical journey during the war. But one is no closer to understanding the inner narrative of the enigmatic genius, Samuel Beckett. Peter Soule. Dare Not Linger, The Presidential Years, is written by Nelson Mandela and Mandla Langer and is published by Macmillan. In 1994, Nelson Mandela became the first president of a democratic South Africa. From the outset, he made it clear he would serve just one five-year term, and during this time he sought to ensure all our citizens became equal before the law and laid the foundations for abandoning apartheid and turning our country into a fully functioning democracy. Dare Not Linger is the story of Mandela's presidential years. Drawing heavily on the memoir he began to write towards the end of his term of office, but was unable to finish. Well-known South African writer Mandla Langer has completed the task using Madiba's unfinished draft, detailed notes made by Mandela as events were unfolding, and a wealth of archive material. It is fortunate all this material was available, as we now have a detailed narrative of Mandela's presidency and the creation of a new democracy. The book begins with a chapter on how Mandela adjusted to life of freedom before he was released from prison and to early contact before negotiations began with the government. He tells of an occasion when he first met President de Klerk and read a column in his De Berger by the editor criticizing the concept of group rights as apartheid through the back door. When they met, Mandela told de Klerk, if his mouthpiece condemned the idea de Klerk should know, the ANC would reject it out of hand. Mandela says de Klerk impressed him by saying if the ANC would not even consider the issue, he would scrap it. 
Mandela sent a message to the ANC leadership in Lusaka describing the president as a man of integrity with whom they could do business. There were many disagreements and tense moments between then and the election in 1994, but once in government and as the leader of a government of national unity, the GNU, Mandela devoted much time in a hands-on approach, keeping himself informed on almost all aspects of policy in order to maintain the coherence of the ANC in the GNU. An example of this was Inkosizana Klaimini Zuma, who as Minister of Health was keen to enact legislation outlawing smoking in public places and amenities and to establish a medical school at the Lutuli Hospital in Durban. De Klerk was opposed to both these ideas and called her to his office telling her to stop her nonsense as farmers would be put out of work and she should rather build a medical school at Pretoria Hospital. Klamini Zuma said she was not convinced and de Klerk said he would oppose her in cabinet. She overlooked telling Mandela, but when he heard Madiba called her in, asking why she had not told him, he told her he had advised the clerk never to call any of the ANC's ministers and tell them whatever. The day after his inauguration, Mandela arrived at an almost deserted union buildings as the previous government had taken the whole of their private office staff with them, leaving only the functional and administrative staff. Mandela was anxious to dispel any notion he would dismiss the old personnel. Although pressed for time, he made a point of shaking hands with each and every member of staff, causing them to relax, as Mandela's personal warmth towards people from all walks of life did not go unnoticed. Those who came across him describe him as generous, self-effacing and easygoing, a man who knew how to be an ordinary person with a sincerity demonstrated by his greeting everyone in the same way. On the 24th of May 1994, Nelson Mandela delivered his first State of the Nation address to a completely different parliament to what we had previously known. Members and their guests were dressed in traditional clothes. Madiba had decreed that with democracy we now had a people's parliament where the doors were open to all. During his address he quoted Ingrid Jonker's poetry describing her as an Afrikaner African. He travelled extensively, especially in Africa, which he found as complex a place as South Africa had been when he came out of prison. The world was his stage, and the world took to him without hesitation. Dare Not Linger is a valuable addition to our library of South African literature, as it records the activities of our first democratically elected president, and we have not seen the like of him again. Mike Fitzjames. Nice program, Gory. You just get better and better. I have three quick reading thrillers this month. The first is House of Spies by Daniel Silver. Legendary spy, part-time assassin, and of all things, art restorer. I always regarded them with suspicion. Gabriel Allen is back and looking for a revenge determined to hunt down a dangerous terrorist and ISIS mastermind known only as Saladin. Four months after the deadliest attack on the American homeland since 9-11, terrorists leave a trail of carnage through London's West End. The attack 
is a brilliant feat of planning and secrecy, but with one loose thread, namely the ISIS operative who supplied the assault rifles was a well-known French Moroccan street criminal. The thread leads Gabriel and his team to the south of France and to Jean-Luc Martel and Olivia Watson, a former model. Martel's enormous wealth is derived from drug dealing. Now Martel is doing business with a man whose sole objective is the destruction of Western civilization. Read on and on. This is a real page-turner. My second choice is Red Light Hand by Chris Holm. So you think your thrill-seeking is over? Not a bit of it. A family's holiday video goes viral when it captures a terrorist attack. But in the background, it also reveals a witness long believed dead. The organization the man had agreed to testify against will stop at nothing to silence him, but Special Agent Charlie won't let that happen. Michael Hendricks is co-opted by Charlie because he has a history of witness protection. He in turn decides to enter an active crime scene and find someone with a very good reason to hide. This was a belter of a yarn. My third choice is A Great Reckoning by the fantastic Louise Penny. Now we reach the dizzy heights with this police procedural starring former Chief Inspector Grimash. He has been hunting killers his entire career. And now, as the new commander of the Sûreté Academy, he has been given a chance to combat the corruption and brutality rife throughout the force. A former colleague and professor of the Sûreté is found murdered. In his possession is a map of three pines. Now suspicion turns to Gamash himself and the unlikely but possible involvement. This is a wonderful weave of crime and possibility. If these three books don't turn you on, you're quite possibly dead. I do hope not. Finally, the titles were House of Spies by Daniel Silver, Red Right Hand by Chris Holt, and A Great Reckoning by Louise Penny. One last prompt. Please support your local booksellers, new and secondhand. They are all fantastic and they do a great job. Goodbye now. Philippa Schaefitz. Two truly South African cookbooks this month. One is Butter and Love, Burakos from a Farm Kitchen by Anna Carolina Alberts, published by Quiver Tree. And the other one is Curry, Stories and Recipes Across South Africa by Ishe Govenda Ipma, Human and Rousseau. From the endearing title to the bright and breezy fun styling by the author herself, it's a lovely to look at cookbook. Anna features on the colourful cover holding a pile of mealies. Anna is a proper chef as well as professional stylist working in Cape Town. She shares her memories of growing up on a farm in the Sulphur Springs district of Mapumalanga, biltong and biscuit in the pantry, Sunday lunches with pot roast, potato salad, mustard ring and malva pudding, and church bazaar tables with a surfeit of sweet treats. There are the recipes for all the much-loved favourites, tomato breedy, tomato lamb stew, 
hundepaste, chicken pie, cool fricadella, meatballs wrapped in cabbage leaves, babuti, plenty for the braai, including Anna's favorite banana and onion salad. There's milk jelly, melkos, the smooth one, not the textured one, sprinkled with lots of cinnamon sugar, and melktat, an unbaked one served at room temperature or cold. Pretty easy to make, but it couldn't entice me away from our more troublesome baked one with homemade pastry base, but no shortage of baking. There are lots of cakes and biscuits. For me, Oma Ansi's Kuchen, German fruit cake, and Tanti Karen Histemann's Butterkuchen, butter cake are must-tries. Curry is a more serious book. It's more than just food. It's about history and culture. Ishe is a fifth-generation South African Indian. Her roots stem from South India and the immigrants to KwaZulu-Natal who gradually adapted and developed a genre known as Durban curry. It is these recipes that are the author's treasured food memories. These Durban curries of her childhood are an important part of South African food culture. But Ishe wanted to find out much more about the curries that are cooked all over South Africa. And she spent a year traveling to all the different communities to meet the people, listen to their stories, and taste their food. She went from city to farm, CBD to township, covering all nine provinces. All is well documented in this fine cookbook with portraits and pictures. The diversity of recipes is impressive and also tempting. It's certainly the most comprehensive book on South African curries. The author is a journalist, writer and cook, published locally and internationally. She's based in Cape Town. And it all sounds delicious. Cindy Boritz. Jasmine Ward's latest novel, Sing, Unburied Sing, is aptly described as majestic. The author, who grew up and still lives in Mississippi, evokes what it is like to be black and poor in America. She ably melds past and the present realities with stories told and retold, and a thread of the otherworldly woven into the grit of the right now. The story opens with the voice of 13-year-old Jojo helping his grandfather, Pop, slaughter a goat in the yard. His baby sister, Kayla, is sleeping in the house and his grandma, Ma'am, lies dying of cancer in her bed. It will be the first birthday he doesn't get a home-baked cake from Ma'am. His mother, who he calls Leonie, comes home with a store-bought with a store-bought consolation prize of a cake in keeping with her general disregard for her children. Leonie's black but married blonde-haired Michael, white, and so their children are a bit of both. Michael is in prison, a place called Parchman, well known to the family through personal experience and other recollections. When Leonie gets a call from Michael to say he's being let out, she bundles the unwilling children into her beaten-up car and they set off with her drug-addicted friend Misty on a road trip that brings the archetypal road novel into rural 21st century America, as the book blurb describes. 
Ward poetically drives the blatant point home that the residue of a racist past is still very much part of the American reality, particularly in the fictional town she portrays here, where Jojo and his family stay. Leone likes to get high a lot. When she does, she sees her dead brother, Given, who was killed in what was called a hunting accident by a white acquaintance who happened to be Michael's cousin. A little after Given died, when they were still in high school, Michael asked Leone to go fishing with him, and she describes how, from the first moment I saw him walking across the grass to where he sat in the shadow of the school sign, he saw me, saw past the color of unmilled coffee, eyes black, lips the color of plums, and saw me, saw the walking wound I was, and came to be my balm. He subsequently landed in prison, the same place Jojo's pup, Leone's father, was sent to as a boy for nothing more than being the brother of Stag, who got into a fight with white boys. Jojo loves to hear stories from Pop about his prison days, especially about Richie, a boy of about 12 years old who was dragged in for stealing food to feed his brothers and sisters. Jojo's fascination with Richie's story manifests in the form of a ghost later on. Is Jojo hallucinating, or is it a real connection with the past? When Ward won the National Book Award for Fiction late last year for this book, the New York Times reported that in her acceptance speech, she noted that occasionally in her career, she has faced skepticism from people who doubted that there was a commercial audience for fiction about poor black southerners. They said, why should I read about a 13-year-old poor black boy or his neglectful drug-addicted mother, she said. There are many reasons why you should read this book. For its lyrical quality, the relatability even of the magical realism, and the relevance of this story right now in 21st century America. The author manages to make a number of observations on racism, the nature of time, and the need to truly understand the other's lived experience in this world. Sheila Chisholm. My life in dancing, ballet and Spanish across three continents, is Dame Marina Groot's fourth published book. Her first, The History of Ballet in South Africa, is the most comprehensive guide to this country's ballet history from 1802 to 1980. Her second, The Bolero School. Her third, published in 2007, is a history of the Royal Swedish Ballet from 1592 to 1962, a book for which she received the 2008 Karina Ari Gold Medal from Sweden's Princess Christina. Born Marina Keaton Calvinia, the future Dame Marina Groot saw her first ballet at 10 when her postmaster father transferred to Stellenbosch while classically ballet trained, it was to furthering Spanish dance that she's devoted her life. Married to Danish national Mikael Groot, a PhD in forest science and forest economics, his work has taken the couple and their children from South Africa to Europe, America, to retirement in England. Dame Marina's dancing life is not intended as a follow-up to her South African ballet history book. Nevertheless, the personalities she writes about, the incidents she relates, fill huge gaps in our ballet and theatre history. Under Elizabeth Coombs and Jasmine Honoré, Dame Marina studied Spanish dance. 
That was the era when one learnt not just flamenco, but all the wonderfully colourful regional dances now all but forgotten here. Jasmine inspired De Marina to further her Spanish dance interests with Elsa Brunelechki, internationally recognised Spanish dance authority living in England. When in 1955 Dame Marina went overseas and studied under Brunelleschi, Brunelleschi encouraged her to further her knowledge by visiting Spain to learn from authorities there. While still a student at UCT Ballet School, Dame Marina discovered her talent for choreography. To gain practical experience while in England, she joined Dame Mari Rambe's fledgling choreographic group. Returning to Cape Town, De Marina taught history at UCT Ballet School, simultaneously forwarding her choreographic career. South Africa always had a strong Spanish dance following, spurred on by visiting Spanish dance companies. The Groot family's move to Washington in 1981 saw De Marina produce her finest work. She founded her own Spanish dance company, for which she choreographed numerous successful ballets from Washington Dame Marina regularly visited Spain, bringing back up-to-date ideas and knowledge to share with her company. During her career, Dame Marina met countless famous dance and theatre personalities. And while my dancing life reads like a who's who, where specific people have added to her success, Dame Marina always gives them credit. Throughout my dancing life, Spanish and ballet across three continents, Dame Marina tells her interesting life, adventures, the people she met and worked with in such picturesque good humour, it makes a jolly good read. In hardback, superbly illustrated, my dancing life is available from Amazon at approximately 222 rand. Bookshop reference is ISBN 9781912083. That's it then. It was very good to be with you. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music, from Batabataba Rodebi, who cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bose Taylor, it's happy reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers. And we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. <laughs>